Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. A few miles north of Alcatraz just off the coast of Tiburon, sits Angel Island. It's entirely a state park with some of the most spectacular views that you can find of the Golden Gate Bridge and San Francisco. People take the ferry to hike the trails that crisscross the park and learn about the island's not-so-beautiful history. You see, for decades, while the government passed and upheld restrictive Chinese immigration laws, Angel Island was used as an immigration station. Chinese who came to the U.S. would face extra scrutiny compared to other immigrants. They were interrogated and often detained on the island for months at a time while they waited out their fate. But there's another chapter in the history of this island that isn't as well known. The chapter that comes next, after the island stopped being used as an immigration station. During World War II, another group of people suffered on this island. The Japanese. Today on Bay Curious, Japanese internment on Angel Island. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. Months before the coronavirus outbreak, Bay Curious received a question from a listener wanting to know about what happened on Angel Island during World War II. Turns out the island played a very specific role in the internment of Japanese Americans, though very few people know much about it. Reporter Cecilia Lay headed to the island to learn more. It's a picturesque pre-pandemic Sunday morning in San Francisco when I board a ferry to Angel Island. Just a few things to cover as we get underway. The last time I visited the island was during a middle school field trip. I learned about the Chinese Exclusion Act, saw the poems that Chinese immigrants had carved onto the walls. 
but I didn't learn anything about the Japanese being held here during World War II. So I'm on my way to meet the only expert who knows this part of the island's little-known history. For a short time, one of the barracks was used to house enemy aliens. And that's what the Japanese immigrants were classified as. And also, a number of the I drop in on Grant Din, who is teaching Angel Island's own tour guides about the internment of Japanese residents that happened here. My name is Grant Din. I'm a volunteer with the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation. 78 years ago, after Pearl Harbor had broken out, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which authorized the rounding up of Japanese immigrants and Japanese Americans who were citizens into um, relocation camps. In 1942, Japanese residents all along the West Coast were arrested because the U.S. government suspected that many of them had allegiances to Japan and could secretly be working on their behalf. Japanese fishermen had every opportunity to watch the movement of our ships. Japanese farmers were living close to vital aircraft plants. So as a first step, all Japanese were required to move from critical areas such as these. More than 110,000 Japanese-American civilians, including children, had to abandon their homes and businesses. Now they were taken to racetracks and fairgrounds where the army almost overnight had built assembly centers. They lived here until new pioneer communities could be completed on federally owned lands in the interior. They were relocated to remote camps throughout the U.S., surrounded by armed guards and barbed wire. They lived like this for the duration of the war. About two-thirds of them were born right here in the U.S. And then there was another group, people the U.S. government considered to be the biggest threat and the most dangerous. This is the group that Grant researched. All the people who were rounded up during this program by the Department of Justice, uh, by the FBI, were Japanese immigrants. And so by that means, they were considered enemy aliens. Unlike the other Japanese civilian internees, a majority of these, quote, enemy aliens were men who were born in Japan. They faced interrogations and were separated from their families during their internment. These men were singled out because the government had been keeping an eye on them for a while, as far back as five years before Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Even before World War II broke out, there were dossiers being kept on Japanese immigrants who were in this country, both in Hawaii and on the mainland. The FBI was watching anyone who had close ties to Japan or held prominent roles in the Japanese community. Buddhist priests, language school teachers, shopkeepers, newspaper editors, anyone who was considered a leader or expert in Japanese culture. Especially martial arts. I, I found several cases of people who were in kendo or judo, and so they had, went to Japan for meets, and so they were often put on the list of potential saboteurs. The rounding up of these Japanese residents happened very quickly. Homes were raided without warrants. Papers were confiscated. About 17,000 total Japanese immigrants were arrested, and 700 of them were from the West Coast, mostly from Hawaii, sent here to the Bay Area, to Angel Island. The island was a temporary dormitory, a processing center, where they stayed before being shipped off to other internment camps on the mainland. My, my grandfather was 46 years old when he was uh, picked up by the FBI. 
That's Bay Area resident Mark Shiganaga. I live here in the North Bay in San Rafael, California. I'm a third-generation Japanese-American. A few years ago, Mark discovered that his own grandfather, Kakuro Shiganaga, was one of the first Japanese men to land at Angel Island. He had been living a normal life in Maui. By the time uh, the war broke out, he had four children. His crime? Keeping a diary. Here's Mark reading a part of the transcript from his grandfather's hearing, which would determine if he would become interned or not. The second question was, um, what was the purpose of putting down these anti-American and pro-Japanese statements in your diary? And his response was, as it was my habit, as I write every day, I wrote those things in too. So the next question was, are you for Japan? And his answer was no. Then, are you against Japan? And again, he said, no. What struck Mark in particular was that his grandfather was not denying his ties to Japan. He was not a very political person. I think it's because he's thoughtful and it shows an honesty. He's true to what he's thinking and he's just relating it in this under testimony. He says, no, I'm not against Japan. Why should I be against Japan? That answer may have gotten him interned. If he had said yes, it would have changed the fate of our whole family. The decision was made. Kakuro was found guilty of subversive activities and of being disloyal to the United States. He would be sent to an internment camp. Despite the verdict, Mark says his grandfather's file confirms what he remembers of his gentle late grandfather. Because he was a peaceful man, and that sort of sentiment comes through in most of these answers. Kakuro was sent aboard the USS Ulysses Grant in late February 1942. It was an uncomfortable 10-day overseas trip to get from Hawaii to the San Francisco Bay. He was a part of the first group of 172 Japanese-Hawaiian immigrants who landed at Angel Island, and his actual journey was detailed in a book written by historian Patsy Saiki in the 1980s. In all, about eight ships formed a convoy which zigzagged its way to San Francisco. There were no portholes, for they were below sea level. What made the internees miserable was that they were locked, eight or ten in a room, for three hours at a time. At the end of three hours, the door was unlocked, and a guard escorted the men to a makeshift oil barrel latrine. It was continued days of humiliation and suffering. Transferred into small tugboats, they sailed to Angel Island, which housed the quarantine station. Some of the men had never seen San Francisco, and this glimpse of the city and its environs reminded them of the misty hills of Japan. Upon arrival to Angel Island, Kakuro and the other men were photographed, fingerprinted, and examined in the nude for infectious diseases. Then they were each given two blankets and were told to go upstairs to rest. This is pretty much where they were kept most of the time. They would go down to the mess hall, which is right behind us, about 50 feet away. That's it's the same room that Grant's tour has led me to on the second floor of the immigration station barracks. 
It's a 36-foot by 70-foot room. It was extremely crowded, and the odors were pretty strong. And just the fact that, you know, 150 to 200 people were in this room, designed really to hold about 60, was pretty overwhelming. The room was lined with three-tiered bunk beds. Men also slept on the floor. Today, it's a popular stop for Angel Island visitors because of the Chinese poems engraved on its walls. The poems captured the sadness, boredom, and anguish of Chinese immigrants as they waited for months, sometimes years, for their fates to be decided by immigration officials. The engravings were a haunting welcome for Japanese internees who had just arrived. When people hear that this building, which was used to house Japanese internees or incarcerees, is still around and there are still remnants of the site, then they get excited that it's still here. Because most of the sites where Japanese were rounded up and, and kept are no longer, you can no longer see anything. Japanese internees lived on Angel Island for up to about a week before being transferred to larger internment camps. One thing that's important that even Bay Area people don't even know about the Angel Island history. These are Asian Americans sometimes, and sometimes they're ones with ancestors who might have come through here. For Mark Shiganaga, learning that the Bay Area held a small piece of his grandfather's internment history was eye-opening. One of the things I thought immediately was, oh, I thought I was the first person of my family in the Bay Area, but but that's not true. My grandfather was here just like five miles from where I live. Kakuro Shiganaga spent nine days total on Angel Island before moving to six different camps across the country, including in New Mexico, Louisiana, Wisconsin, and Tennessee. He was freed over three years later, a couple months after World War II ended. His personality was different. After the war, he was, he was not severe at all, and his attitudes sort of melted away and became much softer. He noticed the inequities and the really torrid conditions in which the blacks lived in the South. And he saw similar types of inequities with the Native Americans when he was in Santa Fe. He observed firsthand what uh, these other types of minorities, uh, communities were experiencing, and he thought he was in a better position. Mark says the internment experience forever changed his grandfather and his perspective of America. I, I think about how the war experience shaped the way uh, we were brought up basically to be as American as possible, as American and apple pie as possible. I think it was just a, a, a protection, a protective mechanism by the, by the parents in trying to raise their kids so that they would be accepted. For me, as a child of immigrants and as an Asian American, I understand what Mark is saying, both the anxiety and the longing for acceptance. It's a feeling that shapes the Asian American experience, and it's one that lingers generation after generation. Like Hakuro found out during World War II, our identity often comes with the highest of stakes. And that's still true today. During the coronavirus pandemic, Asian Americans have been verbally and physically attacked, even right here in the Bay Area. Whether we're called enemy aliens or pandemic starters, it's clear that when it comes to being an Asian American in the U.S., our history is never just a thing of the past. 
Reporter, Cecilia Lay. You can find more on this story at baycurious.org, including photos of Kokuro and resources on how you can find if one of your family members was held on Angel Island. We'll also put a link in our show notes. PBS has a new documentary series out called Asian Americans, about the identity, contributions, and challenges experienced throughout American history. Watch it using the PBS app or at video.kqed.org. Today's episode was made with help from Rob Spate, Paul Lancor, Mina Kim, and Carly Severn. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.